All right, so as you're finding your seats, go ahead and grab a growth guide. For those of you that are listening or watching online, just a reminder to check in. You can use the app or you can text us or you can fill out the comments section of the video that you're watching. So we are in a series called In It Together, which is working through the gospel, or I'm sorry, the letter to the Philippians. But it is about the gospel. And the theme of this whole book is to be citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. Last week, I told you that although this is kind of a very personal letter from the apostle to a church body that he founded in Philippi, uh, there are, are several dangers that he addresses. And in the beginning part, it was more about the danger from opposition. They were in physical danger. Paul was in prison with the possibility of losing his life. The Philippians were facing opposition from their primarily uh, Roman counterparts there in the city. But now we've moved on to the second danger, which is the danger of false doctrine. So what the Apostle Paul here is doing is trying to safeguard them, trying to inoculate them so that they are not influenced by and not led astray by false doctrine. Again, the theme of this whole book is based on Philippians 127. And I've highlighted each week, just about each week, I think, the different themes that we're focusing on this week. And today you'll see that both living as citizens of heaven and the good news are highlighted because we're going to see the relationship between those two. What does it mean to accept the good news, to embrace it, to live it out as a citizen of heaven? Remember, Philippi was a Roman colony, which meant that all the people, the people who lived there, citizens of Philippi, were also citizens of Rome. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, Roman citizenship is great, has lots of benefits, but your primary identity, your primary allegiance is to the kingdom of heaven, and what does that look like when you live out the gospel? And in this short section that we're looking at today, I think the question that it answers is this, is the path you're on taking you where you want to go? Now, you know, if you were going to go out and get in your car and you wanted to head to Montreal, you would take one path and you would take one direction. If you wanted to head to Disney World, you would take a different path and a different direction. And where you end up depends upon what path you're on, what road that you take. Now, that seems obvious in the physical world. But sometimes people manage their life, take a path in their life that leads them to a place where they really don't want to go. So what we want to identify is what path are you on and what is the end result, the end destination of that path? And is it taking you where you really want to go? Today's message is called Two Paths. And we're really talking about the results. We're talking about the destination. Where is the path that you are on taking you? And what we're going to say is that the path you're on, this is today's bottom line, will determine the results you get. Again, pretty obvious in the physical world, but sometimes we are on a path and we don't really think through where is this taking us and where are we going to end up if we stay on this path. And we're going to see, again, in this very relatively short section that's kind of a transition in the book, that the path you're on will determine the result. Are you going to, is it going to result in either destruction or rescue? Will the path 
that you're on lead you to be ruled by your flesh or God's spirit? And will the path that you're on lead you to rejoice in the Lord or glory in shame? And we'll explain what all of those mean. And then the challenge, how can you make your life better? How can you more fully surrender to Jesus? How can you say yes to Jesus? Well, you decide on the results you want and you choose the path accordingly. Because Jesus famously said, I am the way and the truth and the life. So what does it mean to be on his path? And what does that mean for you? So I've invited Jesse Gregoire to read today's scripture. It's Philippians chapter 3, verses 15 to 21. And he'll be reading from the New Living Translation, right? I will. Be. Okay, good. <laughs> All right, thank you. Good morning, everyone. I hope all of you who are mature Christians will agree on these things. If you disagree on some point, I believe God will make it plain to you. But we must be sure to obey the truth we have learned already. Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. For I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. Their future is eternal destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things, and all they think about is their is life here on earth. But we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. He will take these weak mortal bodies of ours and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power that he will use to conquer everything everywhere. So let's pray together before we dive in. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word, and I thank you that you have preserved it for us. Lord, I know that you are constantly placing uh, a choice before us, a choice of path, and I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see the path that we're on, uh, see any places where we are taking a detour or need to make a course correction. Make that clear to us. And then give us the courage and strength to act accordingly. Lord, we know that because you are a gracious and loving Heavenly Father, you want what's best for your children. So reveal that to us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Okay, so let's look at these two paths. The path that you're on is going to determine the results that you get. Now, the two paths that I'm going to pick out are from that passage that we just looked at, two phrases that characterize the different paths that are available. The first one is found in 318, where it says, there are many whose conduct shows they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. So the first path is the path of those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, this is not probably what you're thinking of when you see that, because that sounds very stark. Uh, you know, you probably can't think, uh, you know, that anybody in here would be an enemy of the cross of Christ. And, and it sounds very strong, but 
it's more nuanced than that. And it's easier to be an enemy of the cross than you may realize. The second phrase is in verse 20, where it starts out, but we are citizens of heaven. So he's laying out two paths. There's the path of those who are the enemies of the cross and the path of those who are citizens of heaven. So that's going to be kind of the big picture uh, outline of this passage. Now, at the beginning of this passage, he's really kind of finishing up what he said before he goes on to the next thing. And this is what he says. Let all of us who are spiritually mature agree on these things. Now, the these things that he's talking about are the things that he just mentioned in the previous passage that we looked at last week. And they are also the things that define what it means to be either a friend or an enemy of the cross of Christ and what it means to be a citizen of God's kingdom. So what is he talking about when he says, let's let's those who are spiritually mature, if you're on the right track, you're going to agree with these things. These, These are settled issues for you. So what is he talking about? Let's go back and look. In verse three of Philippians, he's describing Uh, his gospel, the gospel that he preaches compared to those who are in opposition. And he says, we worship by the spirit of God. So throughout this whole passage, throughout this whole book, there's a big contrast set up between the flesh and the spirit. Some translations translate the flesh when it's in this context as your sinful nature. And that is part of it. It's that, that part of you that is broken, that makes you want to do the wrong thing and unable in some cases, to do the right thing. And he says, as opposed to those who focus on the flesh, we worship by the Spirit of God. And then he says, we rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. Again, implying the contrast that you can rely on your own efforts and the, your spiritual pedigree. Remember we looked at that last week? Or you can set that all aside because it's never going to be enough and you're going to rely on the cross of Christ, what Christ has done for us. Then the third point that he makes is we put no confidence in human effort. So he's saying this is, this is what it looks like to be a friend of the cross as opposed to an enemy of the cross. You're going to be worshiping in the spirit. Your focus is on the spirit versus the flesh. You are relying on what Christ has done for you rather than what you can do. And you put no confidence in human human effort, your own abilities. And then he sums it up like this in verse nine, where he says, I no longer count on my own righteousness. And this is the key. This is the whole bottle of wax right here. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. In other words, I, my standing with God is not based on my performance. I, that would be a hopeless, uh, tragic ending because I'm always going to fail. I'm always going to fall short. I don't count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous. This is something that is done for me and in me. I become righteous through faith in Christ. And remember, there are certain, there, there are multiple aspects of faith. Faith is not just believing something. It is putting your trust in something. It's declaring your allegiance to, think of faithfulness, to Christ. So he's saying, I don't put any confidence in my own self. I am not 
trusting in my ability to do the right thing. Instead, I've set all that aside and I put all my trust, all my hope, all of my faith in Christ. And that's how I become righteous because God has declared me righteous because of what Christ did and he's working in me. Remember that passage? I think I put it in your growth guide even though it's not up here. Uh, He's working in me to want and to do his good will. So again, that's kind of the whole ball of wax. What are the two paths? You can try to earn God's favor by jumping through certain religious hoops and doing certain things and not doing some things. Or you can say, that's a hopeless effort. I throw myself on the mercy of God and I ask him to do what I could not do. So when he says... You're mature if you, be, if you hold on to these things. He's saying, look, these are things that you should be uh, solid on. There, there shouldn't be any question about this in your mind. And so before he goes on, he wants to make sure that that is settled. And so this is the way this first paragraph ends that we just read. But we must hold on to the progress we have already made. And I think what he's saying there, because remember, the issue that he's dealing with is the issue of what are called the Judaizers, the people who came in behind Paul and said, yes, Jesus and all that, that's wonderful, but you've got to become Jewish before you can become a Christian. And you have to do all the Jewish things and obey the Jewish laws. And in particular, you have to identify as Jewish through circumcision, and then you can follow Jesus and all that. And he says, no, if you do that, you are rejecting the gospel because the gospel is Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. So I think what he's saying there is, look, you started out right. You heard the gospel from me. You put your faith in Christ. Don't go backwards and now try to earn it through your activities or through some religious right. Hold on to the progress we have already made. Now, I'm going to take just a slight detour, because, but it's an important detour, because last week I realized that uh, uh, for two reasons. Number one, last week when we were talking about the Judaizers, Paul uses some extremely strong language. He calls them dogs. He, he's very upset and angry at what the Judaizers are doing. So because that language is so strong, that's, that's really jarring. Secondly, uh, I want to address this because in our world today, it seems like there's, there's always anti-Semitism. It is always cropping up. It is always rearing its ugly head. And it seems like that has been more the case over the last couple of months than at any other time. So I think it's important for us to address this because Paul's language was so strong and anti-Semitism seems to be in the news and in our consciousness today. That that is not what is going on here because so often sometimes Christians uh, or people will use the Bible to support anti-Semitism. There is no support for that whatsoever in the scriptures and it would be a tragic misuse of the scriptures to use it for those purposes. What Paul is so angry about and the reason that his language is so strong is not related to the Jewishness of circumcision 
as you will see in just a second. It's because they are using Jewish religious rites as a way of undermining and perverting the gospel. He probably would have been just as angry at Romans doing the same kind of thing because what's important to him is preserving the gospel because the gospel is the only thing that matters and the only thing that makes a difference. And anything that threatens their faith and the foundation of their faith is going to make him angry. And I want to demonstrate this through two case studies, the Timothy and Titus. Now, Timothy and Titus are familiar names to us. Those are uh, names of books in the Bible. First, second Timothy and Titus. Those are the people we're talking about. We talked about Titus a couple of weeks ago because he's mentioned in this letter. He was a co-author with Paul in this letter. He was there when he was writing it. And Timothy is going to be sent to Philippi to encourage and report on their progress. So let's go back and look at these two. Now, what's interesting about Timothy is that he had a Jewish heritage because his mother was Jewish, but his father was a Greek. So we encounter him first in chapter 16 of the book of Acts. Paul went first to Derbe and then to Lystra. Uh, These are two cities in Asia Minor where there was a young disciple named Timothy. It goes on to describe his mother was a Jewish believer, but his father was a Greek. Now we know from 1 Timothy, I believe it is, that it was his mother and his grandmother. They taught him the scriptures from when he was little. He was basically raised Jewish, raised in the Jewish faith. And then he became a believer. So he's a new convert. He's a follower of Jesus when Paul encounters him in Acts chapter 16. Now, Paul is very impressed by Timothy. And as a result, he wants to take him with him. He wants him to join them on their missionary journey. What they're doing is they're traveling around, uh, starting usually by meeting in the synagogue, explaining to the people, the Jewish people in the synagogue, how Jesus is the Messiah that they've been longing for and waiting for, and then taking the gospel beyond that to the Greeks, the Gentiles in whatever city he's in. So they would start in the synagogue and expand out from that. Remember, notably, in Philippi, big, fairly good-sized city, There weren't 10 men. You needed 10 men in order to form a synagogue. There's no synagogue there. The people who are the the believers in the Jewish God are meeting uh, on their own alongside the river. And the first converts, I believe I remember correctly, are women. So, So this is not an overwhelmingly Jewish area that he's writing to. But that was their pattern. And so he wants to take Timothy along. Now, it might surprise you in light of reading the book of Philippians, this next verse. In verse 3 of chapter 16 in Acts, it says, In deference to the Jews of the area, he arranged for Timothy to be circumcised before they left, for everyone knew his father was a Greek. So the way that you would fully identify as a follower in the Jewish religion, you would be circumcised. That was the mark of being a Jewish believer. Now, Timothy, because his father was Greek, that, for whatever reason, had not been done. But in everything but that, he was Jewish. And so because he wants to take Timothy along, and he doesn't want to create any unnecessary barriers to them receiving him 
where he goes. He says, you're already Jewish in every other aspect but this, so just go ahead and make it official. He's not rejecting his Jewishness. He is, in fact, saying fully embrace it. And then you can easily go into the synagogues. You can come along in the journey. There was a mission-mindedness to this. So despite what you see in Philippians, I want you to understand that Paul had a great appreciation for his Jewishness. This is what he says in Romans. So what advantage do the Jews have or what benefit is there in circumcision? Now, what he's saying there is basically the same thing. Being Jewish was equal to being circumcised. Being circumcised was equal to being Jewish. He's saying, in essence, what's the benefit of being Jewish? And he says, it's considerable in every way. First, they were entrusted with the very words of God. The Old Testament, what many of us refer to as the Old Testament, you'll see in Bible Project videos and other places, they'll often refer to as the Hebrew scriptures. I like that because that's what he's talking about. He's saying God, when he first revealed himself to the world, he used the Hebrews and they wrote it down in the Hebrew scriptures. And then a little bit later, he picks up the same theme in Romans 9. He comes circles back around. This is the message translation. They said they had everything going for them. Family, glory, covenants, revelation, worship, promises. He's outlining all the benefits that the Jewish people had. To say nothing of being the race that produced the Messiah. Jesus was Jewish. The Christ who was God over everything always oh yes, which is the message translation of amen. It's like yes, I mean they got it going on. So what Paul is saying in this is his heart breaks for his own people because he was Jewish as well because the fulfillment of everything that had been revealed to them is found in Jesus, but they're rejecting Jesus. Now, that's what Paul is doing, and that's why Timothy is encouraged to be circumcised so that he it's this is paul summarizing his ministry approach his philosophy of ministry i try to find common ground with everyone doing everything i can to save some so he doesn't want to introduce an unnecessary barrier to the jewish people hearing timothy as a proclaimer of the gospel now contrast this to titus Titus' background was he was a full-blooded Greek. His father and his mother were Greek. They were Gentiles. So when he brings Titus back to the Jerusalem church where the Jewish leaders of the Jerusalem church are in charge, he says like this in Galatians, and the leaders of the church supported me, what they supported him in, and did not even demand that my companion Titus be circumcised, though he was a Gentile. So here's here's a situation where Titus is a follower of Jesus, but even the Jerusalem Jewish Christians didn't think it was an issue that he wasn't circumcised. Why? Because he's a Gentile. And your standing before God is not dependent upon your Jewishness or your non-Jewishness. It wasn't even an issue for them. So you can see that contrast He's saying to Timothy, look, you're, you're, you're already Jewish in all but this. Embrace it because that will make you an even more effective messenger of the gospel. For Titus, he's saying this isn't even an issue. And beyond that, it would be unnecessary and contrary to the gospel for him to try to become Jewish when he is not. 
So I hope that that helps you to understand. Number one, the, the, the real emotion that Paul has around this issue. It's not about Judaism. It's about the gospel. And to help to clarify that there's no excuse, no reason for anti-Semitism found in the scriptures. And it is completely contrary and un, uh, unacceptable as a follower of Jesus. So when he says, back in Philippians, let's get back on track. When he says their conduct shows that they are really enemies of the cross of Christ, what is he saying? He's saying by, by adding something to faith in Jesus, identifying as a follower of Jesus, following Jesus, uh, you are undermining the gospel. That makes you an enemy of the cross, so anytime you look at it and say, okay, well, following Jesus is great, but you also got to do this. You got to do this religious right. You, there are certain things that you have to, uh, you have to have the same conviction or, or uh, it's legalism is elevating an issue of conviction or conscience to an absolute you know, for, for Timothy, it was great for him to be circumcised. He was a Jew in all but that. But to elevate that religious right as an absolute that everyone must do in order to be a legitimate follower of Jesus is legalism undermines the gospel. And Paul wanted nothing to do with that. And he wants to safeguard the Philippians so that they have nothing to do with it. So Settled that issue? Everybody got that now? All right, so let's move on. The path that you're on will determine the results you get. Now, that was a little introductory paragraph. We're going to move quickly through the bulk of it that remains. So he's contrasting the enemies of the cross, where that path leads, and what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God and where that path leads. And he starts out by talking about destruction versus rescue. He says they are headed for destruction. Now, what does that mean? Uh, that means uh, in the big uh, picture of the cosmos that at one point at the end of time, everyone is going to stand before God and give an account for their life. And there will be either judgment, wrath, or there will be salvation and rescue. In the book of Romans, and if you have more questions about Paul's view on, on uh, his own Judaism, read through the book of Romans. That's really good. Uh, but it starts out by talking about the, the, the righteousness from God is being revealed in the gospel. And then it goes on to say, and that's a more familiar passage, it goes on to say the wrath of God is being revealed. It's, it's all being revealed in the gospel. His righteousness, the way he makes us righteous, and also his wrath poured out on Christ. And if you reject Christ, come in for you. That's what it says. And so he's saying, if you're going to live as an enemy of the cross, your path is headed for destruction. It means judgment. It means God's wrath. It means eternal death, ultimate separation from God. Now, the contrast, he doesn't make as clear in this passage, but I think you'll see it in the later part. He says that we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we eagerly 
are we eagerly waiting for him to return as our savior? There's that word savior. There's, there's a rescuer coming. The wrath of God is coming and the enemies of cross are on the path to destruction, but there's a way off of that path and it's found in Christ. He is our rescuer. He is our redeemer. He is our savior. And I, see, I think you see that uh, also suggested in the next verse, verse 21, using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. And this is just the way that it struck me. If you're, on the, the, if you're an enemy of the cross, you're on the path to destruction, you're trying to do it on your own, and things are just going to fall apart and they're going to end painfully poor. <laughs> it's going to be a bad ending. But if you are focused on Christ, if you're following Jesus, he is your savior. And the end of the story is a good ending of the story. He, everything is going to come together using the same power. He'll bring everything under his control. If you feel like everything is flying out of control, that's the path that leads to destruction. But the path that leads to Christ is one where things are coming together. And he's at one point going to bring everything under his control. Uh, the way Tim Keller used to put it, I think, is that everything wrong will become untrue. How does he say it? Something like that. Everything wrong, everything broken, everything sad, that's the word he uses, will become untrue. So that's what we're talking about. It's either going to end in destruction or rescue. And the path you're on will determine the results you get, destruction or rescue. But secondly, ruled by your flesh or God's spirit. The next bullet point that he says, if you're on the path to destruction, if you are an enemy of of the cross, says their God is their appetite. Remember how I said both spirit and flesh were big themes in this? Well, what he's saying is your appetite, your drives, your desire are going to be your God. They are, they are in control of you. You often will hear me talk about Ephesians 5.18. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It means that the Holy Spirit is the controlling influence in your life. Not your flesh, not your drives, not your desires, not some drug or alcohol. It is God's Spirit that is the controlling influence in your life. And it leads into different directions. And then I see this, again, hinted at in the second part of the passage that we were looking at, where he says, he will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own. What is he saying? It's like, you're going to depend on your flesh? You're going to be ruled by your flesh? That's weak. And it's not going to last forever. But you can surrender your life to Jesus. He can put his spirit in you. And that, is, uh, uh, that can look forward to it. It begins now, but you can look forward to your weak mortal bodies being changed into glorious bodies like his own. It's two different paths that lead to two different experiences and two different outcomes. The path you're on will determine the results you get. You're on the path to destruction or you're on the path to rescue. You're on a path where your flesh, your appetite, your drives are the controlling influence in your life or you can be on the path where God's spirit is the controlling influence in your life. And then he ends it like this, talking about rejoicing in the Lord versus glorying in shame. The next bullet point that he says about an enemy of cross of the crosses that they brag about shameful things. When you are apart from Christ, apart from God's Holy Spirit's controlling influence in your life, 
there is a brokenness, a depravity that is a downward spiral. So much so that at some point you begin to glory, rejoice in, take pride in things that you should be ashamed of. And again, Romans is a good place to go and just read, especially the first part, first couple of chapters. It talks about this downward spiral. And, and this is an important thing to remember because as you're deciding, should I be a follower of Christ, should I not? Uh, there are two very distinct paths with very distinct ends. And the path that is apart from Christ is a downward spiral where your appetites and your drives become the controlling influence and things that you didn't think you would ever be involved in, you find yourself involved in. And the things that you might have caused shame in the past, you now think that's great and you would glory in them. And so he's saying, this, this, is, this is a serious warning because there may be a point where you begin to brag about things that you should be ashamed of. Now, I see the contrast and the parallel back in the verse that we looked at a couple of weeks ago that introduces this passage. It's back at the beginning of chapter three where he says, rejoice in the Lord. And he says, I never get tired of telling you these things and I do it to safeguard, safeguard your faith. What he's saying is if, if you rejoice in the Lord, if you are glorying in what Christ has done and what he does for you, if your confidence is in the power of God rather than in your own weak mortal flesh, if you are putting your trust and your hope in Jesus, then uh, you are worshiping in the spirit. If you, if you have this shift, then you're gonna notice that the path you take takes a different direction and it ends well and the journey is enjoyable and so he's constantly pointing them back to Jesus and the way that he talks about it is rejoicing in the Lord keep your focus on Jesus keep putting your trust in him put no confidence in the flesh don't try to jump through these religious hoops they're not going to lead you anywhere and if you do that it's like a safeguard to your life and to your faith you're, you're going to stay on that path. There's joy in the journey, and it ends in a place where you want to be. And that's the result that we're talking about. What have we said? The path that you're on, the path that you choose, will determine the results that you get. Destruction or rescue, ruled by God's spirit or your flesh, and rejoicing in the Lord or glorying in shame. So I want you to just take a second as we finish up and just reflect on the path that you are on. Now, I realize that I'm speaking mostly to people who have chosen the path of Christ, but it's not unheard of for people who are following Jesus to get off track, to put a little bit too much confidence in your own flesh, to get a little bit too wrapped up in the world, to allow the flesh to be a controlling influence or something else besides God's spirit to be a controlling influence in your life. I'm not asking you what path you wanna be on. I'm saying, look at the path that you are on and then choose. What results do you want? Do you like where that's going to lead you? Or do you like, uh, is a change called for? And then choose accordingly. 
What does that look like for you? I don't know, but I have trust and confidence that God's spirit will make it clear to you whatever changes he wants to work in your life. Now, I'll end with this story because I think it illustrates this last part. Uh, he wraps it up by saying, this is the last bullet point, they think only about life here on earth. And he contrasts that in the next verse to our life as citizens of heaven. And we are eagerly waiting for him, Jesus, to return as our savior. When I was probably about 12, my parents and I had an opportunity to go out on a sailboat on a river, on the Caloosahatchee River, which runs between Fort Myers and Cape Coral in southwest Florida. And it was probably about a 30-foot sailboat. It was a pretty big boat. And uh, the owner allowed me to steer it for a little while. And what he said, the river's pretty big. It's about a mile wide. But he said, focus on a particular point uh, on the on the ground on the on the land, and just focus on that. And by focusing on that, that when you are steering the boat, that'll help you keep on a line. It's your focus that that set your direction. Because if you're looking around and you're not focused on anything, you're going to drift. You, you're gonna. But just focus on that one point, and that'll determine the path that you take. What's the, Paul, what's the Apostle Paul wrapping this up with? He's saying, look, you can either focus on just the things that are around you, the things that are vying for your attention, the things that don't matter much, or you can focus on eternity and eternal values and the direction that you want to go and where you want to end up. Your focus is going to help set your path. So what are we focused on? What path are we on? Where do we want to go? And does our path match up with that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I constantly think about how blessed we are that you have shown us your path, that you have revealed your way in the scriptures, and even more so that your way is wrapped up in a person, that the way is not a a plan or a map it's a person it's found in Christ and by being in Christ by being citizens of the kingdom of heaven we are on your path Lord I pray that you would help us to keep on that straight and narrow path that you would show us when we deviate that you would convict us that you would redirect us and Lord, help us to know how best we can cooperate with your plan for us because we know that as a loving Heavenly Father, you want only the best for your children and you are constantly working to bring us to that end. We thank you for this. We pray this in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. 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 Have a great week.